Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, what's at the bottom of the ocean? You all know what we're doing. You all know what we're doing. Look, no, exactly. (laughs) This is Behind the Bastards, a podcast about the worst people in all of history. Um we're all going to feel like the worst people in all of history a little bit making jokes uh, uh, adjacent to this week's topic. Andrew T, my guest uh, today. How are you doing, Andrew? Hi, I'm alive, you know, just uh, striking mm-hmm. but alive. Fighting, fighting against the man. Andrew, you are a, uh, a, a writer in the uh, in, in, in the entertainment industry and are on strike like all Correct. of the all of the God fearing writers out there. Um, right. Which means you have time to be on a podcast. So uh, it's really working out good for me, this whole strike. <laughs> I mean, here's the other a secret of TV writers. We always uh-huh. kind of have time to be on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything that can count as procrastination is always, yeah, always around. Yeah, this is wonderful. God, I vacuumed my whole, whole, whole uh, Oh, I'll bet you're getting a hell of a lot of cleaning done. Instead of, yeah, instead of yeah. trying to, try to do anything productive. Now, Andrew, I un- is, it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, because I, yeah. I, I, I come from a slightly different world, but while you can't, we can't, you can't be doing any writing for like TV or whatever, we mm-hmm. can make a reality show together, right? That doesn't <laughs> violate anything, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that is what we're doing now, essentially. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I, I, I'd love to get you involved in a project that I've, I've had passion for for quite a while. Um, oh, yeah? Basically, basically... I fill a super soaker with my own piss and okay. you and I drive around in a van. And whenever we see anybody who looks like they might be famous, like around <laughs> Rodeo drive or wherever we just, we squirt them with the super soaker full of piss and then we get it on camera. It's, and then we call it's, it's a show called super soaker full of piss. It's a good idea. I think this is not materially worse than anything else. <laughs> on, Fair. On reality TV. Yeah, I've been looking to get into politics, and I'm I'm thinking about how Donald Trump's career got started by the last writer strike, and I feel like yes. this could be my opportunity. You know, this Now's could be my celebrity apprentice. Yeah, yeah. All the all the like the Wall Street Journal is like, 
the, the super soaker full of piss guy is never gonna never gonna amount to anything. And then it's like, well, I mean, obviously he's making he has a lot of a groundswell of support, a lot of a lot of good points. <laughs> yeah, I run once in 2028, and everybody laughs. And then in 2032, everybody is like, I don't know, the piss super soaker guy is kind of making a lot of sense. <laughs> it's really passionate mm-hmm. fans, mm-hmm. It's and it's it's thing. what you know. In a normal time, I think people would would consider the idea of squirting famous people with a super soaker full of human urine to be silly. Um, but given our topic today, it's downright responsible, Andrew. Um, <laughs> because today, I mean, I, I feel like normally we come and I'm like, so what have you heard about, you know, X person yeah. potentially obscure or whatever? Uh, we were all aware of the death sub, right? That, that, that uh, imploded is, on its way down to the Titanic. This is like so tricky because... Normally, uh, as far as the audience goes, like like the the service behind the bastards provides is uh, informing, not, and not mm-hmm. that you won't be informing people of stuff, but uh, this is probably we're at nearly the apex of broad knowledge about this human being that's only going to diminish over time. Yeah, it's interesting. I there's like so much that's wrapped up in this, and it's it's such a yeah. there's a lot that's kind of fascinating about what the 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 interest in this and the way people are talking about it says about kind of like our current moment in media i've yeah. chosen for these epi- episodes to kind of rather than well, focus specifically on on the accident to focus on stockton yeah. rush and like yes. his background and kind of where he comes from and how this all got together um but we will kind of be talking about the stuff around it including yeah. you know it's interesting there's this like a lot of so the kind of the two big arguments over this thing that have that have been filling the internet so far are like should we laugh when a bunch of billionaires die in an easily predictable accident and that's between you and your god people like (laughs) i can't i can't and also it's one of those things where it's like if you think it's bad to laugh when like people you don't know die that's a perfectly ethically consistent point also if you think that it's fine i don't really that's 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 what it's whatever it's like if we're going to flip out about people laughing at this, like the internet has been like full of shit like this from the very beginning. If you can remember yeah. the early days, the Darwin awards were one of like the biggest things on the internet, which was just laughing at people dying in stupid yeah. ways. This really is the ultimate what? like Darwin award. I, I think I, of I course it finally, is. Yeah. finally come down to um, the thing I, I think I wrote on Twitter was some version of like, look, yes, I get it. It's probably not healthy to like hate these people, but I'm just going to, I think I triangulated to, I just love them less than anyone else who was victimized in any way this week. And I also love them less than any penny that was spent trying to rescue them. Yeah. That's, that's more or less where I am on this. And like, there's the other thing that people are pointing out is like, there was just this horrific hundreds of people who drowned in another one of those boats that, uh, that's yeah. And it's, you know, I, I actually have kind of like a slightly off the mainstream take about that, which is like the thing people are saying is, well, it's fucked up that this got so much more attention than that. And yes, it, it definitely is, but it's also like, uh, not, particularly surprising like sure. if you think yeah. back because I, I started co- i started covering like refugees moving from kind of northern africa uh to through europe back in 2015 i was on the refugee trail for a while and it was a huge story people paid a lot of attention there was a lot of aid coming in 
you know, when that when that little boy, um, I believe his his name is Prince Island Curdy, yeah. uh, drowned a few years back. Like that was there was a massive amount of attention, and then it because it happens so often, kind of just became normalized. Which is yeah. the thing. I mean, it happens with mass. Sh- it's not just a thing that happens. With, it happens with fucking mass shootings, right? Like it's this is a thing that happens because yeah. people can only sort of like be outraged or horrified about a thing they can't directly affect, you know, which is not to say that like more shouldn't be done or that the fucking coast guards and some of these like Italy and whatnot are not doing nightmarish things. Yeah. Um, stopping rescuers from coming in, but it's not surprising or really a mark that like people are much worse than they've ever been that like this yeah. unique story of a bunch of rich people dying in a sub visiting the Titanic got so much attention like that's yeah. just a, not a surprise if, if like a thousand years ago a bunch of wealthy merchants had disappeared on a sea voyage from like venice to the coast of spain this would also <laughs> be like there would be stories being sung in the market square about this shit that's just how people are but you know? that i guess is a little bit why if given all that as true which it is i believe as yeah. well like that is why I feel like derision is actually kind of an important part of this marketplace of ideas. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think that's wrong, but that's up to, you know, people can make their own decisions. Yeah. I, my job here is to let you know about the specific guy who was absolutely the worst in all of this, because yeah. whatever you think about the other people on their boat, there is a villain of this story. There is a yeah. monster who, who is directly and who would have gotten more people killed if he, had the chance and his name is fucking Stockton Rush. Um, I really Yeah. Just for like having I was just gonna say just for context listeners, uh Robert and I've been doing this show for five years and this is the only topic where I was like, oh Robert, yeah. do we have to? And Robert's like, yeah, we fucking do. <laughs> yeah. So okay. It, it would be irresponsible for us not <laughs> to try and do this. <laughs> I just it's it truly is like if you're gonna have this like Ayn Rand ass name, you gotta go out in an Ayn Rand ass oh, style. This is the Ayn Randest death ever. <laughs> like the, the yeah, it's it's so it's so appropriate for like the guy yeah. that he is that this that this happened. So let's talk about Stockton Rush. Now, the first thing you will have noticed is that yeah, he sounds like he's got he sounds like a guy who would be in Galt's Gulch, right? Like he's yeah. got a very yeah, an Atlas shrugged ass name. Um, it's a dumb name. Um, and the name, like he has this dumb name because our special dead boy was named for two of his ancestors, Richard Stockton and Benjamin Rush, both of whom signed the Declaration of Independence, which for rich white people was kind of like owning a foil Charizard in 1999. Like it was real <laughs> special, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And he's speak- a twofer. He is a twofer. Um, Good for him. And, and speaking of owning, Andrew, when you hear signed the Declaration of Independence, the first thing you should probably ask yourself is like, did this guy own people? Yeah. Right. I mean, like, did this guy own human beings? <laughs> um, yeah, he sure did. Uh, well, yeah. these guys, these guys both did. Right. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah. And this shouldn't be surprising. Um, I'm going to read you first some fun information about Richard Stockton, uh, who is who Stockton University is named after, by the way. So that's cool. Uh, quote, in Stockton's case, enslaved people worked in his family home, a property he called Morvan, built after he inherited near Princeton, New Jersey in the 1750s. 
When he died in 1781, and despite assertions during his lifetime, Stockton did not free the people that he owned. They appear in his will when he bequeathed them, along with his other property, to his wife, Annis Stockton. And whereas I have heretofore mentioned to some of my Negro slaves that upon condition of their good behavior and fidelity, I would in some convenient period grant them their freedom, this I must leave to the discretion of my wife, in whose judgment and prudence I can fully confide. Oh, so he's God. like, I promised these people I could free them, but I'm passing that buck down to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> What a piece of time. shit. A prudent mm-hmm. time for your freedom. Like, is it- piece of sh- Yeah, sorry. <laughs> When's convenient for me yeah. for you to be free? <laughs> Let me pencil that into you, for you, yeah. Oh, and good. it's, like, that's shitty. It's pretty normal shitty for the day, which doesn't sure. make it less bad. But, like, yeah, he's a pretty normal, rich, slave-owning asshole, Richard Stockton. Um, it's also, interestingly enough, there's a pretty good chance that he turned traitor against the United States. He was, like, arrested Ooh. by the British... No one knows quite. It doesn't seem like there's like conclusive evidence about what he did, but he got kind of let off and there were rumors that maybe he'd like given up information and stuff. Hell yeah. Um, We don't seem to have. uh, Yeah, he's a snitch, right? He's a slave owning (laughs) snitch. And we finally got him. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Poseidon finally got, took care of that snitch. Put an end to that family line. (laughs) Benedict Arnold's descendants are next. (laughs) Yeah, Tom Arnold better watch the fuck out. (laughs) They're coming for him. (laughs) Stay out of the water, homie. Stay out of the water. So uh, let's talk next about his other ancestor, Benjamin Rush. Uh, This is a somewhat more complex story, Um, and as Rush authored one of the first major pieces of abolition writing in the colonies, a 1773 pamphlet titled An Address to the Inhabitants of the British Settlements in America Upon Slavekeeping. Now, that sounds pretty good. Uh, Benjamin Rush was an ardent and active abolitionist. Uh, He helped organize the first anti-slavery group, and he eventually named the Pencil, which was eventually named the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Um, Interestingly, you know, we talk a lot on the show about how many abolitionists were still real racist, right? Like you right. could be an abolitionist and super racist. Benjamin Rush was interestingly enough one of the guys who argued ardently that black people were as smart and capable as anyone else. Um, he authored a 1789 article about the first free black physician named James Durham, uh, and he also wrote about uh, an enslaved black mathematician named Thomas Fuller. He was like kind of writing anti-racism tracts back in the 1780s, which is pretty cool. Um, here's here's where it stops being cool because <laughs> he was publicly an anti-racist. But privately, he bought an enslaved black man named William Gruber and held him in bondage as his cook for more than a decade. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that like that's obviously there's all kinds of, you know, poli- any combination of politics can exist, as we all see, obviously, in rarer, rare proportions. But it does sound like also there's some version of like, you know, oh, oh black people aren't inferior. We're just lucky that we could enslave them. Like what yeah. a what a boon. Yeah, it's um it's it's really it's it's kind of fascinating, like the like what's going on with this guy. Because like he he buys William Gruber. He like he doesn't just keep him as a cook, but he hires him out for profit to other families. Um now, he files manumission papers for William in 1788, but that doesn't actually free Gruber until 1793, 
when he kind of lets him go with a, the equivalent of a letter of recommendation. Um, and I, a write-up I found on the University of Pennsylvania Library's website seems to argue that Rush was probably probably kept it a secret that he'd owned Gruber because he's this public anti-racist. So he would like hide the fact that he was keeping a man enslaved in his home um, because he's like a public intellectual who argued with racists in like these tracts and essays and stuff that he was printing and it wouldn't have looked good. Um, and I'm going to read a quote from the University of Pennsylvania library here. When Gruber died in 1799, Rush wrote a remembrance of him in his commonplace book. It appears in the autobiography of Benjamin Rush. In it, he described Gruber as a native African whom I bought and liberated after he had served me for 10 years. The period is not likely accurate. He described Gruber's change from a drunkard who swore frequently to a sober, moral man and faithful and affectionate servant. He remembered especially a night in 1787 when Rush, gravely ill, was expected to die and William stayed up with him all night. So he wrote manumission papers for this guy like the year after this dude helped like carry him through a deadly illness, but still didn't free him for half a decade. Like that's that's so weird. Um, I guess it's not, you know, at least he did free him. I don't know where you want to put that. Like, I I mean, I think it is like like very hard to like no matter. Yeah, I mean, look, this is at all levels i mean obviously when chattel slavery was around hypocrisy is probably a lot bigger deal but obviously we all participated some level of capitalistic hypocrisy you know and this is a fucking insane version of that but it is like you know it's some version of like everyone else is doing it and like oh at least i wrote these papers He's like the uh, the Lena Dunham yeah. of his day. Like fucking Yeah, it up, he's he's like he's right Lena thing. Dunhaming. He's Dunhaming pretty hard, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's I think where we're going to leave this guy. Um <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. I I don't claim to be an expert about either of these men, but the fact that Benjamin Rush publicly portrayed himself as an abolitionist and a crusader against racism while owning an enslaved black man could be seen as evidence of what seems to be a long-running family trait that gets passed down to our boy Stockton Rush, which is the ability to act like one kind of dude while being the opposite kind of dude. That's true. Yeah. God, it's. I mean, it's obviously so fucked up, but if you sign the Declaration of Independence and you only have one slave, you're probably for your peer group on the better side of things. Right. Yeah. I don't, I like, I don't know how you want to like mark that out. Cause also, I don't know. Is it, is it better or worse to just be like, yeah, man, I own slaves because I think it's fine. Or to be like, I think it, I know it's wrong to own slaves yeah, and I know it's wrong. True. Like I, I know racism is bad, but also I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like where do we land on that? I don't know. I mean, this isn't, yeah. pe- you yeah. should think about that all of you, but like I, behind the bastards is not where, where we'll true. make that, that, that moral deciding <laughs> yeah. line. They're anyway, all, they're all bastards. It's fine. Uh, yeah, for sure. So, um, that is, that is beyond a shadow of a doubt. So both the Stockton and Rush families continued to be very wealthy and powerful throughout the life of the new United States. Gradually, the two families get intertwined through marriage. You know, it's a pretty incestuous breed, rich people in the Northeast. Um, Mm -hmm. in 1897, their descendant, Ralph K. Davies was born. Davies got a job working as an office boy for a company called Standard Oil when he was 15. He rose through the ranks and became the youngest director in company history. In World War II, he was FDR's petroleum administrator, which is 
maybe the least directly evil job a member of the oil and gas industry ever held. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> one job where it's like, well, you know, it was World War II. We probably needed somebody doing that. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess, look, it's like we're going to go through Stockton Rush's ancestry Grading on a curve, he's okay, but that curve is <laughs> he immensely is, He is skewed. the member of this guy's family you're going to hate the least by yeah. the time. Yeah. <laughs> so after the war, Davies moved to San Francisco and his wife became a major patron of the art scene. She basically paid for the San Francisco Symphony's music hall. Or they, they donated like $4 million to it. Um, her name is still on the venue. Um, and I'm going to quote from an article in sfgate.com here. At a high society ball in 1957, Ralph and Louise Davies's daughter Ellen met Richard Stockton Rush Jr. A month later, the pair were engaged. Coverage of their wedding, accompanied by a huge photo in the San Francisco Examiner, said they were settling down in Berkeley. Talk Rush, as he was known, also settled into the Davies family's line of work, serving as the chairman for Peregrine Oil and Gas Company in Burlingham and the Natomus Company in San Francisco. His 2000 Princeton Alumni Weekly obituary noted that he even served as the president-elect of the city's infamous Bohemian Club, which is the Bohemian Grove Group, right? Like, that's who runs that, so... Wait, I don't even know what that is. What is the Bohemian, Bohemian Grove? Grove? That's that. It's in the Redwoods, kind of near the Bay Area, and it's where it's oh. where like Henry Kissinger and all yeah, and like yeah, Dick yeah. Cheney all go to party once a year. It's right, a bad, right, right, right. It's a bad trees. time, is what yeah. I'm yeah. Alex Jones snuck in once. Oh <laughs> yeah, all, and I, I think all your I, least favorite people's favorite hang. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone who sucks loves Bohemian Grove, oh. and there's a bunch of cons- it's supposed like in conspiracy world it's like where the secret masters of the world all meet to plot um and it also is kind of where the secret masters of the world all meet to plot so right well it's it's the the conspiracy is it's secret masters and the reality is it's the masters everyone knows it's it's hank kissinger and fucking cheney and stuff yeah of course um and it's it's interesting i haven't seen this break out widely uh, onto the internet yet, um, but there, I, I'm, I, we've already started to see conspiracy theories flowing like water through a crack in a submersible's hull here. Um, <laughs> David Concanon, uh, who's a a legal advisor, he's like the lawyer guy for OceanGate, the company yep. that Stockton founds. Yeah, um, is a uh, has already like named. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, he like within hours of this going missing, he was kind of trying to drum up conspiracy theories, posting stuff. Stuff like, you know, we're working on this hard, but like the U.S. government isn't helping us. You know, if if the, if they don't fix this and, and come to our aid, I'm going to make sure the world knows the names of the people who didn't do their jobs. Um, and that's led to like I found a fucking like Donald Trump Jr. has been posting shit about how sure. like uh, yeah, everything about this is sketchy. You know, why are they doing this? I'm, I'm seeing people talk about how like, oh, you know, how would billionaires have made a decision yes. so dumb yeah. as to go down? That <laughs> I don't was know, my man. favorite line of thought on stupid? Twitter. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's no way billionaires would would do something yeah. this stupid. And it's like, first of all, also like putting that on Twitter is remarkably like like particularly bonkers. It's like this is Twitter is to the extent that it serves any function now is it's such a direct demonstration that not only are billionaires not better than you, they are actively yeah. stupider than you in any conceivable way. Well, it's not, yeah. In every conceivable way, except for the one thing they made their billions in, modulus luck. Yeah, and it it's it's like I I, I there's 
so I when I think about like what probably conspiracy culture is going to take of this, there's a conspiracy that's existed for a while. It's never been like kind of top of the world, but like uh, th- there's a theory that you that I came across started coming across. I don't know years ago that like the iceberg, the Titanic was blown up by a bomb because a number of the rich guys on it, like John Jacob Astor, were against uh, moving away from the gold standard and establishing the oh. Federal Reserve. It's one of those kind of things, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and so part of like what people are pointing out is that Stockton Rush's wife um, is like she had relatives who were on the Titanic. They're actually in James Cameron's movie. They're the two old people who are like cuddling on that bed as it goes down. And so there's I suspect I, I've already seen some of this. I suspect we're going to see more like, oh, this is like a conspiracy. These guys were going to, you know, had some dirt on Biden or whatever. And the and yeah. what the Fed's doing with interest rates or some shit. It's silly. I will tell you right now, the fact that Stockton had relatives in the Bohemian Club uh, is definitely you're, you're going to wind up seeing this on some YouTube videos that the algorithm serves you at some point. Right. Just, right, just right. be ready for it, folks. It's a coming. Um, so that's Stockton's family background. He is the scion of two very wealthy families who got wealthy through a mix of slavery and exploiting the Earth's resources in the most poisonous way possible. Right. This guy. He grows up, his family's worth probably hundreds of millions of dollars, at least tens of millions of dollars, and he grows up with that amount of money. Uh, In a 2017 Bloomberg profile, he described his family wealth this way. Rush earned his money the old-fashioned way, he says. I was born into it and then grew it. I don't know. That's not really the old fashioned. I, I, I guess it is. It, it is. I don't know, it, man. It is. In reality, unfortunately, that is the the most. I guess that's not wrong. Timeless yeah. way to yeah. be rich is be My, rich. I got it the old fashioned way. My grandparents. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he Aww. notes that like his grandpa made his fortune in oil and gas in Indonesia which I'm sure makes it sketchier because like, boy, how right. there's not a great history of extractive yeah. industries in Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know when Stockton was born, actually. Um, that may be out by the time you hear this. It's interesting. I, I kind of, when I was started looking into him, I was surprised to see that despite how high profile his clientele is and the fact that like, He'd been in a number of prominent news articles prior to this. When I started working on this, at least, Stockton had no Wikipedia page. There was no, like, single Stockton Rush entry on Wikipedia. Oh, wild. And I I wasn't able to find an exact reference to his birth date. One article that I read notes that he was 18 when he got his pilot's license in 1980, which would mean he was born in 62, thereabouts. Beep, beep, motherfuckers. Hey, Robert here from the future. Uh... Since we recorded this, uh, a number of official obituaries have come out for old Stockton, and we we now have an actual birth date for him. The New York Times gives it as March 31st, 1962, and the place as San Francisco. I'm leaving in the conversation we had around it before we knew that, because it gives good context as to how actually like relatively unknown this guy was prior to the disaster which I find interesting considering how connected he is to so many like rich and super famous people that like there's very little about this dude before he became very suddenly famous. One of the things that I use sometimes for research is an AI powered search engine called find P H I N D, um, which is basically like, it, it's nice because you can kind of ask it direct questions and it'll, it'll scrape the internet trying to answer it. And so I asked it when was he, after I couldn't find a birth date, I was like for shits and giggles, Hey, when was this guy born? And find was also like, 
there doesn't appear to be a clear exact birth date for it. Oh, um, that's there's interesting. Not, yeah, there, there also doesn't appear to be a clear exact answer as to where he was born. Some articles suggest he was born in the UK. Others say California. Given how rich his family is, that it's possible. Like it's not weird yeah. for like, like r- rich people to who you cares? know. He was he was probably like born on, born on yeah. the private plane. You know, yeah, between, exactly. Between yeah. those two points, he's he a was, child of the sky. He was yeah. born in superposition in yeah. Schrodinger's box <laughs> somewhere. I mean, it's also I. I was you know not not to go down the AI route, which is not remotely what we're talking about yeah. today. But it is like this. This guy will be given that. Yeah, there was so little apparently like like reliable stuff written about him. It does feel like this is he's going to be one of those examples of like. Almost every word generated about him will have AI in it already. He's just like he's like corrupt yeah. data for the data set already. Yeah. Like I most of my sources for this, I tried to stick to stuff that was written three, four, five years ago before all this happened, just because yeah. like, well, that would it wasn't tainted by what happened later. You get yeah. more information about how the media was kind of covering him and stuff. But I, yeah. I think you are right about this because like he wasn't really a major figure until he yeah. got all those people killed. <laughs> the bulk of shit, the bulk of shit written about him is going to be yeah. lies. Yeah, that's really. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're actually exactly correct about that, Andrew. <laughs> and you know who else loves to lie? <laughs> the sponsors of this podcast. Yes. You cannot trust a fucking word that they say. So please give them your credit card information. How How is that, Sophie? Is that a good? Is that a good ad plug? I think the Reagan coin ad people would like it very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buy a Reagan coin. That's Fucking so morons. Wild. That's so <laughs> wild. I love the Reagan coin. Um, and I love our listeners. Here's that. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. 
For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Ah, good times. So we're back. Uh, Andrew's got his Reagan coins. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, he's, is, he's, this is real money. This is company script on my, mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. private plot of land. Yeah. As soon as his Reagan coin arrived, David Zaslav uh, sent him a letter saying, like, now you're now you're one of us. You're one of the secret masters of the world. <laughs> Want to go to Bohemian Grove, Andrew T? <laughs> I mean, not, again, what's it, not to take a diversion, uh, but Zaslav really feels like like all the billionaires got together just before this writer's strike and mm-hmm. had like a dinner for schmucks kind of thing. To, yeah. It's like, who's the most repellent of us who's going to take the heat from everyone else? And he won slash lost. He I was going to... But doesn't realize he lost. I was going to make like a nerdier reference about it, but but uh, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it. Nobody wants to hear my Warhammer 40,000 jokes. Um <laughs> So, <clears throat> Stockton Rush, probably born in 1962. Um, it's, uh, yeah, he, it, it, uh, hard to say exactly. He was pro- very likely born in California, certainly grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, as a wee lad, he was obsessed with space travel, and he wanted nothing more than to be an astronaut. His parents assumed he'd grow out of that, as most kids do, but since they were super wealthy oligarchs, they were able to humor him by introducing him to a real astronaut, Pete Conrad, the commander of Apollo 12 and the first manned Skylab mission. Just like, well, he wants to be an astronaut. Let's go find an, go find an astronaut, darling. It really Bring him in. Buy us an Apollo 12 man. I mean, like he's a G.I. Joe. It really <laughs> we're we're also at the point where it's like now that now that like some individuals, these mm-hmm. billionaires, start to have resources of countries, yeah. like nothing is off the table, especially if you want to do it on the cheap for incredibly, yeah. you know, shitty and unethically. It's interesting. I'm I'm thinking about when I was a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist for a while, like every kid who grew up in the era of Jurassic Park. Yeah. And we went to like, I think it was the St. Louis Natural History Museum one day. And there was like they had an exhibit where there was like an actual paleontologist and a bunch of like things that they had brought out of a dig site and were actively like cleaning off. And I got to like like shake that guy's hand and he like walked us around. It was like part of a thing, like a bunch of other like families and stuff were there. And it was like one of the the best single moments of my childhood. Um, And for Stockton, the equivalent of that is like, bring the Skylab man over to the house. Have him talk to the boy. (laughs) Right. I mean, he's they're They're at the level of wealth. Like if he'd liked dinosaurs, they would simply have had to get him a dinosaur. They would have sponsored a dig and had him just like go, you know? Yeah. Um, 
with yeah. Anyway, so Stockton claims that Pete told him, you know, if you want to be a spaceman one day, you should get your pilot's license ASAP. Which is, to be fair, probably pretty good astronaut advice. Um, I don't know, not an astronaut, but that does seem like step one. <laughs> uh, in that Bloomberg article, which is, as far as I can tell, I think the first detailed article about Stockton Rush's life and ambitions. Uh, Stockton claims to have started work as a professional pilot when he was 19. Quote, Rush has been investing in startup companies most of his adult life while also working in aviation. He was a commercial jet transport pilot at 19 and later a flight test engineer for McDonnell Douglas. Now, that's not the most detailed version of uh, of his early life that I found in a Smithsonian Magazine profile from 2019. He gives a little more detail and some of it's contradictory because in that he says that at age 18, he became one of the youngest commercial pilots in the world. From what I could tell, what I think happened is he got his license at 18. He started working a year or two later, but like once mm-hmm. he started to get more famous, he started lying and saying that like, Oh no, I was the youngest commercial pilot ever. Um, you know, just a little bit of that fluff cycle. Right. Yeah. Um, it's also, well, there's also <laughs> like when you're, when your parents are rich enough, you know, what you know what by what definition are you saying commercial pilot like someone who is compensated to move cargo from one place to another mm-hmm. like that's also daddy giving you you your allowance and saying take my luggage to wherever <laughs> that's interesting andrew because the first article about him just says he was a commercial dread shit transport pilot you want to guess where he was working when he started his pilot career <laughs> you want to guess who his employer was so uh- yeah. Remember, his parents, both sides of his, his 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 mom and his dad's family are both huge oil and gas families helping to run major oil and gas companies. And Stockton's first flying job is taking chartered planes into and out of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so he's, he's working for the Saudis yeah. as a teenage boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that is. I mean, that's but that's also the billionaire version of. I drove my friends' kids, my parents' friends' kids around. Like yeah. a, a babysitter, essentially yeah, a babysitter. I, when I was a kid, like my mom would help me like talk to, you know, when I first started mowing lawn, she'd be like, well, let's go over to the neighbors and see if they need like their lawn mowed and stuff. And yeah. for his equivalent is like, well, <laughs> the king of Saudi Arabia needs like a, yeah. a pilot to take, I don't know, probably like, fuck it. torture supplies or whatever to fucking yeah. Riyadh. Like, Oh. Um, it's this cool. Is, this is, it's awesome. This is a very, very dumb tangent, but for some reason, the algorithm on Instagram has decided I want to see Saudi fast food reviews. So, oh shit! I bet they got. I bet there's good fast food in Saudi Arabia. It looks wonderful. It looks. Mm-hmm. It's. I mean, it's. And it's so funny the way culture works. It's like they're all like speaking Arabic in the exact same like TikTok cadence as yeah, like English language TikTokers. I don't. I don't speak. Um. I, you know. I don't. I don't know. Know what they're saying. But I'm like, okay, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm able to pick up a lot more than I otherwise would because you're like using the same patterns as tiktokers all around the world the fast food looks great burger king burger king in uh riyadh looks quite good i will say the best fucking popeyes i've ever eaten at was in the uh the airport in amman jordan um yeah fucking incredible popeyes um Um, god i think they've changed their standards but kfc in beijing when i went as a kid was they apparently still used lard to fry everything and it was hell yeah they did so good 
I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. yeah. Not at all surprised to hear that yeah. KFC in Beijing slaps. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, uh, while he's, while he's working for the Saudi Royal family as a pilot, he's studying aerospace engineering at Princeton. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, that's, that's, that's a fun career. Um, so he, uh, he's, he's called he, like he, his description of this is that it was the coolest summer job. Um, <laughs> Interesting way to phrase that. Uh, yeah. So he, he goes to school. He's doing aerospace engineering. For his thesis, he builds his own plane from a kit, which like, that is like impressive. That sounds difficult. Um, I don't know. Mm. feels weird as a thesis because you are just kind of like following a kit. But what yeah. do I know? I'm not an I engineer. Mean, I, I, you know, that's that's like putting in a little like taking a Lego set to your to your thesis presentation. <laughs> I it's finished like, it. I did it. Yeah, I don't know that it would have been possible for him to not get his thesis, given the amount of money his parents probably gave to that school. But whatever, you know, I've never built a plane. So what do I know? I've also never built a death sub. So I guess I have that on him. So anyway, guys, that Smithsonian article continues. The astronaut dream was dashed when Rush learned that his eyesight wasn't good enough for him to become a military pilot. In the 1980s, still the astronaut fast track. So he kind of has the background of that kid from Little Miss Sunshine. Um, yeah, that's, his, <laughs> that's, that, that's, the, that's the continuation of that dude's life. <laughs> Instead, he moved to Seattle to work for McDonnell Douglas as a flight test engineer for F-15 fighter jets, then went on to business school. Building on inherited money, he invested in a string of esoteric tech companies, wireless remote control devices, sonar systems. Still, he dreamed of going to space, perhaps as a passenger on one of the private rockets being developed in the early 2000s by the likes of Richard Branson. In fact, Rush traveled to the Mojave Desert in 2004 to watch the launch of Spaceship One, the first commercial craft sent into space. When Branson stood on its wing and declared that a new era of space tourism had arrived, Rush says, he abruptly lost interest. I had this epiphany that this was not at all what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go up in space as a tourist. I wanted to be Captain Kirk on the Enterprise. I wanted to explore. Oh, my God. So oh. there's a lot in that paragraph. Um, Jesus. First of all, the articles I found, and again, no one's really done a super deep dive on this guy. They all kind of take his red <laughs> well, from what he said. He did one. Like, he, did, he did one. He did one. Um, but they all kind of take his red that like he built on his family wealth through smart investments and made a bunch more money. We don't actually know that. Like Correct. his yeah. family might just have been super rich. He may have been terrible at investing. We have no evidence actually that he was good at it that I've seen. Well, or um, with that amount of money, like he can, he can even have made money and yeah, still like stuck sort in an of, index fund <laughs> yeah oh but yeah but, but even like with his little like you know investing shit you know given given the way the market is the the real question is like did he do better than yeah like an index fund or like yeah, yeah, someone yeah. who actually knew what the fuck they were doing it's the same way like you know donald trump has kind of made money at some point but it's like yeah yeah but did he do uh, did he make enough money given how much he started with Exactly. Yeah, it's it, that, that, I think that's like a fair way to look at it. Um, it's also really interesting to me, super interesting to me, I think kind of is the key to understanding this dude, that he loved the idea of Spaceship One until he realized it was just someone else's spaceship for tourists, right? Yeah. Because it's Branson's ship, if he gets on it, all he's going to be is a tourist. And he didn't want to be a paying customer, like visiting space as a casual rich visitor. Now, he describes as like, well, I wanted to explore. I wanted to be Captain Kirk. I don't think that's actually accurate either. 
I think he wanted to be Richard Branson, selling yes. tickets to rich old white dudes who would worship him as a badass billionaire adventurer, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's that's what this guy actually wanted. Um, now, the startup cost for this guy's rich, his family's rich, but like, there's rich and then there's being able to start your own space company rich. And right. this guy is not that rich, you know? His, his family doesn't have that kind of money. Yeah, if um, he was, look, if he was actually that good an investor, he would have that kind of money. He would have, so. yeah. Yeah, why didn't you, uh, why didn't yeah. you get your, make yourself a billionaire first? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Stockton. very, very stupid people have accomplished that, so. Yeah, it's, it's not a high bar, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, yeah. Elon Musk has a rocket company, and that dude, oof, yeah. what a mess. Um, just like the most patently stupid person it's amazing but you know musk is evidence that like the market's starting to get crowded by kind of the uh, the early to mid aughts so stockton decides he's got to go somewhere else somewhere where there's less billionaires getting involved which at this point is the ocean right now stockton has always liked the ocean uh he'd been a dedicated scuba diver most of his life you know he's rich his family's going to all these exotic places on a regular basis for vacations so he's done a bunch of diving all over the world and he specifically he he gets into because he moves up to seattle as an adult and he does a lot of cold water diving off the coast of seattle now as he notes the diving off of the puget sound is gorgeous um but it's like Cold water diving is like a whole different beast from like regular open water or regular diving, right? Like mm-hmm. where you're in, I don't know, like fucking, I, I learned to dive in Okinawa um, mm-hmm. where the water is kind of a perfect, comfortable temperature, right? It's mm-hmm. one of the best places in the world for diving. The Puget Sound is cold as hell. So if you're going to dive there, you've got like special suits, you're, you're carrying extra tanks. It's like more of a pain in the ass. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of how he describes it. Quote, I loved what I saw, but I thought there's got to be a better way. And being in a sub and being nice and cozy and having a hot chocolate with you beats the heck out of freezing and going through a two-hour decompression hanging in deep water. Now, that's funny for a couple of of reasons. Like, I I don't know. Subs are fine. Subs are cool. Like, I think what James Cameron has done with his submersibles is, like, neat. Um, But uh, it is funny that this guy's like, I wanted to be an explorer, but also I want my hot cocoa. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like, read about what astronauts go through. It's not a comfortable process. Yeah, but that's, like, you know, that's exactly the, the dilettante that yeah. winds up exactly. His path is, like, more perfect than it probably should have been, honestly. Yeah, no, he should have died a lot faster. Like, if he'd gone to space, he wouldn't have hacked it as well, because it's, yeah. space is a whole mess. Um, yeah. Like, they're, they, everybody's nasty up in space. They don't talk about that enough, but, like, the space stations smell terrible, if you read through the old Apollo transcripts, they're like regularly poop will get out and it'll just be like floating around the spaceship. They'll be arguing about whose shits flying around. It's very funny. Oh, um, God. Yeah, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to be drinking cocoa in that environment. I'll tell you that much. So since he was a very rich kid, he had the power to just kind of go out and spend money to make this expensive whim happen. But alas, Stockton was stymied because there aren't a lot of private submarines. It's actually pretty uncommon for like just a dude to own a sub, um, yeah. which is a shame because uh, I, 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 I did grow up reading the Illuminatus trilogy. I would like to, you know, it'd be cool to have a golden submarine that you run a global conspiracy from. But it's yeah. apparently a real pain in the ass to upkeep them. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we, we're, you know, if you ever needed an illustration of why. There's not a bunch of private subs. <laughs> yeah, we, we did all get a reminder. <laughs> yeah. um, 
in in 2019, when that Smithsonian article came out, they said there are about a hundred private submarines across the entire world. Chartering them is extremely expensive. But Stockton kept digging until he found a company in London that had was like, we can sell you the parts and a kit to build a mini sub that was designed by a retired Navy sub commander. You and love like, a kit. <laughs> you love a kit. You love putting together your own submarine. <laughs> <laughs> but that that is also like just this perfect example of these like rich kid billionaires like building a kit and presenting it as something you made it is it is it's both because like yeah that is fat like that it, it like as you said but it also like i will say if i'm going to trust someone to like take me in a submarine it I would prefer it be someone who knows what it's like to build a submarine from the ground up. <laughs> like I will say that that is probably where you'd start. So so far he's yeah. he's doing he's taking the right first step, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. the problem is there's two lessons, two pretty divergent lessons you could learn yeah. from that. One is like wow, look at the care, look at the difficulty yeah. building a submarine is no joke. Mm-hmm. And the other lesson that it looks like Stockton more took to heart is <laughs> Yeah. See, it's easy. I have mastered the submarine. <laughs> yeah, building and building and designing a submarine is easy. Yeah, and the sub he builds is a twelve foot one man sub. So he's like lying flat in this thing with like his face directly over a porthole, and like that's the way this works. So when you when we say sub, this is like almost more of like a a diving suit, like yeah. a rigid diving suit. Probably is would be like closer to what this is as opposed to like. You know, the Red October, right? <laughs> yeah, Sam Neill isn't fitting in this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, quote, while I was building the sub, I was thinking, this is stupid. I should have just bought a robot and explored with that. But the moment I went underwater, I was like, oh, you can't describe this. When you go in a sub, things sound different. They look different. It's like you've gone to a different planet. Rush was hooked. His entrepreneurial instincts were peaked. I had come across this business anomaly I couldn't explain. If three quarters of the planet is water, how come you can't access it? Now, yeah. that's a fascinating thing to think. Where like he he's underwater alone in a submarine, looking at like the majesty of of reef systems and underwater life that very few people get to see. And his immediate thought is like. Why isn't this owned? Why haven't we yeah. enclosed this and turned this into like corporate property? Well, um, and also though, like clearly his like going further train of thought was not just like, wow, this is amazing and beautiful. Why yeah. doesn't everyone do this? And instead of coming to the conclusion because it's very difficult and dangerous, he came to the conclusion because everyone else is stupid. I'm the only one that thought this is amazing. And people yeah. should see this. Yeah, everyone is stupid. And he, he's not saying people should see this as much. He calls it a business anomaly. He's like, yeah. why aren't why don't more businesses own the sea? Yeah. Is his first thought, right? He is an right. exploiter. He's not an explorer, right? That's yeah. his his primary motivation. Right. right so right. his immediate goal is to start a business to build small, cheap, submersible vehicles, which he thought could be lucrative for a variety of reasons. And when you when you read about the guy, you get the feeling more than anything, he sees this as his opportunity to become a self-made billionaire and put himself on an even footing with guys like Branson and Musk. Yeah. But the private submarine world, you know, it's never been huge. It's never been a big business to be a submarine owner. Um, and it had pretty much collapsed by the early aughts. In his interview with the Smithsonian, Stockton Rush claims that there were two reasons for this. 
one of the big markets for private subs had been carrying what are called saturation divers to work underneath. So you've got oil rigs right in the ocean. They Mm -hmm. go down very deep and they need repair work done on them at intense depths. And these are the kind of depths where you don't just like throw on an oxygen tank and go diving, right? Number one, it's too deep. So when when you're diving, you can go down pretty quickly, but going up, you have to be extremely careful about how quickly you go up, right? Otherwise, Mm -hmm. you're going to fucking die. Um, So when you're going to intense depths like this, and you have to work, so you have to be able to spend a decent amount of time down there to do stuff, what they would do is they would put divers, and these divers don't have oxygen tanks. They have like special formulations of different kind of like chemicals that allow them to breathe in the, the specific, like it, it, I don't know. We're not mm-hmm. going to go into like how diving works. There's different stuff like nitrox. I'm not sure exactly what these guys were on, but they're wearing special suits. They've got special, you know, mixtures in their tanks and a submarine takes them down and takes them back up so that they can get on the sub and be in decompression without kind of running through all that way. They don't have to mm-hmm. carry as much as many tanks and stuff. Um, now, this is was for a while kind of the only way to do repair work on this stuff, but it was extremely dangerous. Like, this was one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. These guys died all the time, not because, like, the subs weren't safe, but because diving at that depth yeah. is incredible. Like, people just die for, like, no reason while diving, you know? Like, sometimes like it's, it's just like yeah. a, you know, your yeah. heart stops or whatever. You get the wrong, you know, mix of shit in your blood. It's like, it's very dangerous to dive, um, especially this kind of shit. Um, so once oil and gas companies, once drones and stuff started being good enough, they moved away from having divers do this as much as possible and started having robots do it, which is like, I'm not going to give the oil and gas company a lot of credit, but I'm I'm sure it was both more cost efficient and like, yeah, people, it's like a lot safer. Um, so the other reason he claims was that, um, or the other like business for private submarines was tourist subs, um, which could be skippered by anyone with a Coast Guard captain's license and were regulated by the Passenger Vessel Safety Act of 1993, which imposed rigorous new manufacturing and inspection requirements and prohibited dives below 150 feet. The law was well-meaning, Rush says, but he believes it needlessly prioritized passenger (laughs) safety over commercial innovation. (laughs) So he's like, it's a, it sucks that they stopped having divers fix oil rigs because they were all diving, dying, and it sucks that they stop they wouldn't they won't let us take people below 150 feet in subs because it keeps killing them. I mean, look, as far as money where your mouth is, he is the most like, like you know, true believer, libertarian bullshit guy. Yeah. Listen, you gotta hand it to him. You have mm-hmm. to hand it to him. Yeah, you got to hit. He did put his money where his mouth was. It is funny where you can. There's just all these quotes where he's like, they're pointlessly focusing on safety over innovating. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe there's a reason for some of those safety regulations. <laughs> Stockton. <laughs> it truly. I mean, you know, when all this was yeah. happening, the one of my like more fucked up thoughts was like, you know, obviously it wasn't likely that these guys were going to get rescued. But I was like. The cost in the world where they are rescued, it will cost so many more lives in the long oh, run. Yeah. Like, well, and it's, you know, honestly, like this, this will not be news to most people or a lot of people probably. But like, you know, if you pay attention to like the world of people who do this kind of stuff. And I, I have I have a buddy who there's a book called Blind Man's Bluff. If you want to read about kind of the shit that U.S. and Russian subs got up to in the late Cold War era. 
Um, it's a really good book. But like, basically, we used to have these fights between our submarines where they would try to force each other to surface. And it was insanely, it's like chicken with nuclear submarines. It was insanely <laughs> dangerous shit. Um, but like talking to him and talking to like other people who are in that industry, anyone who has done this kind of, like four, there have been four submarine rescues that have been successful in the history of submarines. Um, and none of them were very deep compared to where this thing was. There was never any chance of saving these people. Yeah. Um, I don't yes. think. But anyway, whatever. That's not, yeah. that's not what we've got to talk about right, today. Right, yeah, we've got to talk yeah, about just today. Just one in a million. Yeah, one in a million. So Rush calls these uh, these needless passenger safety prioritizations <laughs> understandable but illogical, um, which is very very funny. Um, but what we are, what is interesting to me is that like the submarket falls apart. The real reason is that number one, it's insanely dangerous. The jobs that it was being used for, and we found better uses than submarines, better ways to fill those needs. Um, and number two, once we started replacing like the subs that were being used to transport divers and shit, the only real industry for private subs was private trips for rich people to see shit underwater. And right. the 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 thing that people most wanted to see was the Titanic. And we're going to talk about that. But first, you know what's also Titanic? The savings that you're going to get if you purchase these products. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. And we're back. So we're talking about tourist trips to see the Titanic. So spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the movie. The Titanic went down on April 14th, 1912 with a shitload of people on it. Um, Now, despite the fact that like this is the most famous nautical disaster in history, when it happened and for like decades after it happened, very basic details of what had actually gone down were seriously in doubt, which is weird because eyewitnesses saw the ship break in half the way that it does in the James Cameron movie, right? Um, but but when that happened, like scientists at the time, an awful lot of the kind of like people who were building boats and were experts on this didn't think a ship could go down that way. I think the belief was that like it would basically get overwhelmed and like just kind of all sink at once, but they didn't think it could break that way. And because a lot of the eyewitnesses were like women, there was this like a lot of these people got like mocked and stuff by the like anyway, it was a whole it was a whole deal, um, which is to say that like when people started going after the Titanic, there was a real reason to want to find it, because among other things, you might actually like give some closure to some of these people who had spent their lives being called crazy. Mm. Um, I don't know, whatever it, there, there was, a, there was a good scientific reason to want to find this thing. And the ship, the cruise ship's resting place became remained a mystery until a very cool dude named Bob Ballard got a secret contract from the U S Navy in 1985. Ballard Ballard is an oceanographer. Um, and like Stockton, he'd always loved the sea. Unlike Rush, he turned this love into a diligent appreciation for the science of oceanography, and he gets brought in. He's basically been pitching, I think I can find the Titanic, and the Department of Defense is like, well, we got these two U.S. subs that went missing in the 1960s, and we don't really know what happened, um, but we'd like you to find them, and this Titanic thing, like, we'll basically pretend that we're having you do that and if you find our subs like that you know this will work out for everybody um and i think he does find he finds those subs and he also he finds the titanic because bob ballard is very good at what he does you know this is he's also the guy who finds the fucking bismarck um and because he's the guy who finds the big dead boat he could have claimed salvage rights to the wreck which is like potentially quite a bit of money in salvaging the Titanic. Um, But because he's like a basically decent guy, Ballard was like, I don't want to mine the graveyard of several thousand people for profit. That seems, that seems ghoulish. Um, He actually was like, I think that's grave robbing. Um, So I don't really want to do that. But other people had no compunctions against renting deep sea vehicles and grabbing shit near the wreck to sell back on surface. And we're actually going to talk about those people because one of them winds up on Stockton Rush's death sub. Um, Kind of the biggest of them. But over the next year, some 5,500 artifacts from the Titanic, over the next 18 years, some 5,500 artifacts from the Titanic are sold or put in the Titanic Museum. Bob later wrote, it had turned into an ugly carnival, an affront to the fate of the Titanic and all those who had lost their lives in her final hours. Now, this grave robbing is done by mere subs, which are leased by the from the Russian government during a period in which, like, this is kind of the late 
80s, early 90s, like right after the Soviet Union falls. So like the Russians, yeah. they're kind of needing money, you know? You could do. <laughs> Yeah. So they, my, they're <laughs> my analogous biggest regret is when I did a semester in Beijing. One of the things that uh, this is this will show my age a little bit, but the Chinese the Red Army was uh, enough up for sale that apparently you could drive out to the desert and for one hundred dollars shoot a rocket propelled grenade into a car. Absolutely worth it. That's a good price. That's a solid price, Andrew. I didn't. I was too. I I take very, that deal every day of the week. It was very very <laughs> sketchy, so I didn't yeah. end up doing it. But I was like, yeah. Now I, I wish I yeah. had it. Yeah, it is. You know, you got to be careful anytime people are offering you rocket propelled grenade launchers. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But it is like you know the and it's one of those things we're talking about how insane this Titanic you know, uh, tourism thing was we, I actually chatted on fucking Twitter with some guy who said he, he went to see the Titanic on one of these mere subs. This is pretty safe. These are actual submarines, right? Right. Like with actual crews and stuff like they're rated to be doing this. Nothing bad happens during this, right? We can talk about like the grave robbing and the ethics of that, but like James Cameron films, films the opening scenes of Titanic. Those like opening underwater scenes on one of these mirror submarines, you know? Mm -hmm. And for a while, this is a pretty good way to get down there. Um, The runaway success of Cameron's movie uh, of the same name ignites a new Titanic fever in the hearts of people around the globe. And suddenly there's this kind of burgeoning fan. There had always been since the Titanic went down, people have been obsessed with this, but obviously the movie takes that to another fucking level. Um, There's all these people who kind of make the ship and its story the center of their, it becomes a fandom, you know? Yeah. Um, In 2005, a company called Deep Ocean Expeditions decides to offer very wealthy clientele trips down to the most famous grave in history. And over the next few years, they take 197 tourists there and back again. From that Bloomberg article, quote, the last of those trips took place in 2012, the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. Rush assumed that meant the market was exhausted. Then he talked to Rob McCallum, the British-born adventurer who led the trips. McCallum told Rush that the only reason the trips had stopped was that the Russians quit renting out the mirrors, which have since been mothballed. There was never an end in sight to our market, McCallum says. We just didn't have the machines. So... Now he's like, oh, well, there's a market and like nobody's yeah. serving this shit as a capitalist. You know, nature, capitalism abhors a vacuum. Um, this is this is how I'm going to make my fucking fortune. Oof. So he feels like he stumbled upon a great idea. And the way he puts it in that interview with Bloomberg, uh, which lists some of his uh, earlier ideas for how to monetize submersibles in a paragraph that is extremely fucking noteworthy. This keys you into kind of the most important stuff about what he was really planning to do here. Up to that point, Rush had been thinking about unexplored wrecks, hydrothermal vents, and bizarro sea creatures, not to mention the many ways a capable sub could be leased out to an oil and gas company to service (laughs) undersea wells and oil platforms, or to a research institution to do surveys of sea cucumbers, or to the CIA, NSA, DIA to do whatever it is that spooks do on the floor of the ocean. So that's this guy's ethical basis. He's like, yeah, you know, raping the world for the oil and gas industry, discovering sea creatures, spying on people for yeah. the CIA all equally One valid. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's so funny. Jesus. Like he is this man has the moral center of like a fucking donut. It's yeah. so funny. Um we did not we did not lose a paragon of virtue here. 
No. Um, I am truly grateful that Bloomberg profile exists because it makes very clear the fact that this guy never cared about exploration or expanding the frontiers of human knowledge. He right. was an adrenaline junkie who liked planes and subs and wanted to become a billionaire doing something that he thought was cool. He'd have been happy helping Exxon frack the Marianas Trench if that had worked out for him. <laughs> but it just so happens that there was a bigger market for the, initially at least, in catering to Titanic weirdos. So yeah. he started pouring money into building a new deep sea submersible, the Cyclops and then the Cyclops 2. You know, he takes these guys down, he tests them out, he gets starts getting seed capital from friends and family. He's putting a shitload of his own money into this to the tune of maybe tens of millions of dollars. And at first, he can't really get any big investors involved for pretty good reasons. Stockton cannot get to the Titanic, right? And a lot of people are like, well, he probably is never going to get to the Titanic. At present, I think there are four other vehicles on Earth capable of reaching that thing with people in them. Mm -hmm. um, and they're all owned by various governments. The Chinese Xiaolong submersible is capable of going down the furthest. For a while, famously, James Cameron had the Deep Sea Challenger. Um, which had proved that a rich maniac could have a submersible constructed for this kind of feat. <laughs> right. But the uh, the deep sea challenger, it's not the sort of thing, and not, I don't think any of these are, that you can fit a bunch of customers in, right? Yeah. Like the deep, the way it works, you've got like this kind of superstructure that's this sort of weird, almost cylindrical shape, right, around it. But the actual thing that a dude is in and that like the cameras yeah. and stuff are in, as far as I can tell, is like a sphere because a sphere super, is the, yeah. is is good for pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And it's also like by the time that 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 a stock uh, Stockton's working on this, the deep sea challenger is not operational anymore. There was like it, it took some damage just like because it's this is tough on a vehicle. And then there's like a car accident while it's being transported. And they're like, well, it's kind of been compromised. You know, we have to kind of retire it, yeah. um, which is what responsible people do when their deep sea vessel has been damaged. <laughs> like, <you know? laughs> um, Now, it's interesting. It, it, when he's talking to Bloomberg, Stockton presents both the Zhao Long and the Deep Sea Challenger as kind of like this is what he saw as the proof that his dream was achievable. Quote, people used to ask me, how do you think you can do this if nobody else can? I like to point out that the two deepest diving subs on the planet are the Chinese Zhao Long and James Cameron's sub, the DSV Deep Sea Challenger, which in 2012 carried the Titanic director to Challenger Deep, the ocean's deepest point, and is now retired. They were both built by amateurs who had never built subs before. The sub is not the challenge. The challenge is the business model and logistics. <laughs> now... That is an insane thing to say, Andrew. And if you have it's if you have a hammer, and if you're an <laughs> idiot capitalist who's only yeah, those fucking money. tech bro. Ugh. No, the problem is monetizing it. Building a sub that can go down the depth of Mount yeah. Everest is yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah. That Anyone easy. can. James that Cameron sketched easy. it on a napkin. He just knows how to make Terminator movies. It like, really is also though, like some that is some because because you know his goal was not to do what they did. His goal was to do what they did with the the cocoa that you were talking about. Yeah, with the fucking and passengers, multiple. And it's also he's everything he says is wrong. So he's like, they're all built by amateurs. So the Xiaolong, which is that Chinese submersible, which can read, reach as far as 7000 meters down, was developed by a desired a designer named uh, Zhu Jinquan. Uh, sorry, Zhu Quinan, uh, Q-I-N-A-N. Uh, and he is not I wouldn't. I don't think he's designed a submersible before, so I guess that's what he means by, like, yeah. amateur. But he's the professor at the School of Naval Architecture, Ocean, and Civil Engineering of Shanghai Xiaotong University. That's not an amateur. He's a professor of naval architecture. He seems like an expert. 
<laughs> um, and like there's he, there's a whole team of experts who are like people who build things <laughs> yeah. under this for underwater shit, right? Just They're some not, guy. <laughs> yeah, just, just some a dude. dude. <laughs> <laughs> just in a like you know you you can't walk down the street in LA without hitting a professor of naval architecture right that's like that's like running into a guy with a fucking podcast <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, it's so it's such a funny way to be like they're amateurs. It's, it's also like a, a Chinese government ministry or the people like handling the like the actual yeah. construction and sh- like it's a it's a serious project by serious people. That's why it works, right? Yeah. Um and likewise he's being like, "Well, James Cameron's just this director and he got to make this thing. It's, you know, an amateur." Well, no. Cameron Cameron says that like he contributed, he was one of the designers. He helped do some of the engineering. I don't know exactly what that means, but he did not just design a ship and have it built. He is working with a company, an Australian R&D company called Acheron Project, and the construction is headed primarily by the co-designer, a guy named Ron Allum, who is a professional engineer. If you want to know how serious an engineer Ron Allum is, when they're working on this thing that Cameron takes down to the Challenger Deep, there's like this kind of foam that they are using as part of like the 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 pressure system that keeps it safe. And it's based on like the, the, the initial thing they tried is there was this kind of like nautical foam for pressure pressure vessels that were meant to go down less depth. You know, I think just a couple of thousand meters as opposed to how far the Challenger Deep is. And they test out this foam that's already in use and they find out that it can't handle the pressure. And so Ron Allum invents an entirely new kind of foam for this thing, right? New foam, baby. Not an amateur. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, yeah. In 2009, Stockton Rush founds Ocean Gate Inc. with the promise to deliver man's submersible uh, solutions to the private market. Um, And that is where we're going to end our story for today, because we have now gotten up to the point where the death sub is about to be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. How we how we feeling today, Andrew? How we feeling about this whole tale so far? I mean, I I, I think it is. It's just like exactly the the only reason this guy is an outlier is because most of these like, again, like tech bro libertarian weirdos like know on some level that what they're saying is bullshit and like yeah do not often put their like again go all in on their like half-baked or wrong ideas the same way like like the real thing that you're supposed to do as a tech pro is use other people's money to like and use other people's money over and over and over again until you you know hit yeah. the right lottery ticket and then say it's and, your money and take other people like musk you know, they just had a fucking rocket blow up, right? Musk wasn't on that thing, you know? Um, Like, he doesn't even, there's this, like, we're talking, there's this whole, like, thing going on right now where, like, Musk and Zuckerberg are talking about, like, fighting in a ring. And it's like, that's not gonna, I don't think that's really gonna happen. Um, It'd be funny if it did. uh, But I don't think it's really gonna happen. But, like, that's the, those are the kind of things that the tech bros who are a little bit, less dumb than Stockton do where they'll talk about like doing bold and crazy shit. But if there's actually any risk in it, they, they don't cause they, they don't want to die, you know? Yeah. Or or get hurt or embarrassed, you know? Yeah. And on some level, I think they, they like, yes, they are over, 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 overconfident. But again, the grift is to be overconfident, to like overconfident with someone else's resources, whatever that is. Yes. Yes. And like and, him and it, not understanding that is the fundamental. Like he's the dumb rich boy that 
like these guys exploit. Yeah. Ugh. And it's like it, to a degree, I I don't know, maybe you could say that makes Stockton slightly more in some ways more respectable cuz oh, yeah. one thing you can't say about him like he did put his money where his yeah. mouth was, you know? That that Absolutely. is undeniable. I think that's because he was just even more unhinged than a lot of these people, maybe because yeah. he grew up even richer than them. Like he's not as rich as like Bezos or or, or Branson or uh, or Musk now, but I think he was as he a kid richer, he had yeah. more money. Yeah. Um. So maybe he just like never had any kind of grounding as a person. I don't no. know though. Um. I think it's pretty pretty clear. There's a level of money that completely rots your brain. Yeah. And this guy had it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No <laughs> denying that. Uh So Andrew, you got anything to plug? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, as as I'm on strike, uh, my podcast, Yo, Is This Racist, is continuing, but we also have a premium show you can subscribe to at suboptimalpods.com. Uh, we just did a very fun watch along of Big Trouble in Little China, um, where I get dogged on relentlessly. So if you found me irritating, uh, send us, <laughs> I believe, eight bucks a month and you have access mm-hmm. to this thing. Hell yeah. Um, hell yeah. So yeah, yo, yo, is this racist? Uh, check it out, and uh, yeah, check out. You know, uh, threaten your television with a lighter. Let That's it know right. you have the ability to take it out if, it if the strike doesn't be go ready. the right way. Be Don't vigilant. do anything yet, but yeah, be vigilant, be ready. And uh, subscribe to Cooler Zone Media if you like this podcast, but you're like, I don't want any more ads in my life. For Apple, Android, we'll figure that out. We're working on it. Sophie's working on it. I'm not doing any work. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.